There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Health Essentials Podcast brought to you by Cleveland Clinic. My name is Cassandra Holloway, and I'll be your host for this episode. We're broadcasting virtually as we are practicing social distancing guidelines during the coronavirus pandemic. We're joined virtually by sleep expert, Dr. Andy Burkowski. Dr. Burkowski, thanks for being here and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So for someone who's never experienced restless leg syndrome before, the disorder might kind of sound a little bit baffling or a little bit mysterious, but for those who suffer from it, they know all too well just how frustrating and intense it can be. Today, we're discussing restless leg syndrome. We'll talk a little bit about the physical sensations that go along with it, the triggers, some of the causes, and we'll do our best to provide listeners with tips and advice for managing this condition and also when it might be time to see an expert. Before we dive into this full episode, we just want to take one moment and remind listeners that this is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace your own doctor's advice. Also, this interview was pre-recorded and does not reflect any changes to COVID-19 precautions that may have been made after the recording. So Dr. Burkowski, I wanna first start off by asking if you'll tell us a little bit about your practice at Cleveland Clinic and the types of patients you typically see. So I'm a, a neurologist by training, but I practice exclusively at the Sleep Disorders Center uh, at the Neurological Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. And I see exclusively uh, patients with sleep disorders. And it's a fairly a narrow field, but very common in terms of the uh, diagnoses and treatments uh, that we administer. And uh, most patients in a, in a sleep disorder center are gonna be uh, with obstructive sleep apnea and insomnia are gonna be the two most common, but I, I specialize in the previously mentioned restless leg syndrome. So a significant portion of my patients perhaps maybe a quarter to a third have very severe uh, symptoms of restless leg syndrome. And, and that's my personal sort of sub-subspecialty uh, within uh, sleep medicine. So let's start off with the very basics then. Can you tell us what exactly is restless leg syndrome? So yeah, it can be a, a perplexing uh, disorder if you haven't experienced it or, or you don't see patients with it. But restless leg syndrome is exactly what the name describes is it's this unpleasant feeling in the legs. It's really a restlessness of the legs that people experience. And it's, it's fundamentally an urge to move the legs. And it's really not a leg disorder per se. It, it really is, is occurring in the brain in sort of the parts of the brain that actually feel the legs themselves. And so it's a really a brain disorder, a neurological disorder, but it typically affects people at nighttime. And it's this unpleasant sensation where uh, people have to move their legs and then sometimes it prevents them from falling asleep and in other people it can be quite distressful in situations where they can't move their legs to relieve those sensations so when you mention that these patients who have this condition feel restless and the need to move what exactly does that mean is there pain involved in that is there kind of itching or pulling kind of explain to me a little bit about more about the symptoms that people complain of from this disorder. Well, a lot of times it's very hard to describe because it's 
it's, it meets the criteria for a pain syndrome or a pain condition technically, but it's not painful for the most, for most people. I, there are certain uh, variation of it where people do experience what they would describe as pain, but they say it's just a uncomfortable, undescribable sensation, maybe bugs crawling on their legs or feeling like they want to explode from the inside. But it's not really something that you can explain uh, that patients have an easy time explaining because it just doesn't have a corollary to anything. So just the fact that you can't really explain what you're experiencing might be the fact that you have this condition. Does it happen exclusively only in the legs or can it happen in other parts of the body as well? Typically it, it affects uh, one leg or both legs, but many times, if the, particularly if the condition gets worse or becomes very severe, it can spread to other parts of the body into the torso and arms. But primarily uh, the areas of the brain and the pathways that are affected uh, cover the areas that feel basically the legs. And so it starts off in the legs, it may spread to other parts of the body, but classically it's, it's in the legs, but not exclusively. So you mentioned that it typically happens at night. I'm wondering if, um, you know, and obviously this is a sleep disorder, but can it, can it hit someone at any point of the day during like inactivity, say at your desk when you're working and not really moving a lot or like when you're driving your car? Yes. So the, uh, and we may talk about this later, but there's a relationship to the body's biological clock and, and the body goes through these cycles throughout the day. And it, it may correspond to iron levels in the brain and, and iron levels in the brain may fluctuate at nighttime, which is why the symptoms start to come on at nighttime, but they can occur throughout the day as well, particularly during periods of rest or inactivity, as you mentioned. Uh, we're recording this during the pandemic, so people aren't flying on planes anymore, but uh, air, air, airlines are sort of like a torture chamber for people with restless leg syndrome to be in a confined tight space for two hours without moving your legs those situations typically uh, bring on the symptoms. So uh, theaters, movies, uh, flights, long car rides where you're not driving, uh, these can be very uncomfortable. So it's a combination of, of inactivity and, and rest without movement of the legs, particularly confinement of the legs. But then also at nighttime, when, when people lie down to fall asleep at night, uh, combined with the fact that the symptoms are gonna be naturally worse at night for most people on a regular uh, sleep and wake cycle. I'm curious, how common is it? Like, will most people experience it at some point or another during the duration of their life? Well, probably not everyone, but it's actually extremely common disorder. It's, it's a common disorder that most physicians don't know much about. It, and worldwide, it may affect, affect up to 5 to 10% of the population, depending on uh, what epidemiology literature you look at. But uh, it tends to affect more of a Northern and Western uh, European ancestry. There are a lot of genetic factors involved, but it does affect all, all populations, whether it's African, Middle Eastern, Asian, South Asian, but more so in the, in the Western and Northern European uh, ancestral lines. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, in addition to the five to 10% worldwide, up to 20% of women during pregnancy uh, can experience restless legs syndrome. So that's a significant number of people. And, and for most women who are pregnant, once they deliver, the, the condition may resolve. But that's a, a lot of people who will have had symptoms of restless legs syndrome throughout their life. Is there a certain number of times a night or a week or a month for 
someone to experience this condition that kind of is a red flag that this might be the actual condition? Like what's the frequency estimate for experiencing this? Well, it can vary. There's a, a, a big uh, curve in terms of the symptom severity. So there are people who can get it maybe like once a month. There are some people who have it every night and it's, it's really severe. So there's a whole spectrum. And some of the studies show that in this five to 10% of the population that may have it, maybe 50% have clinically significant symptoms, meaning that you, you may think if you are a patient, you might bring it to the attention of a doctor, whereas half, it's just sort of a nuisance. If you ask deeply about it, which we do in the sleep clinic, we, we take a lot of symptoms. Somebody might say, oh, well, once a month, I, I get this urge to move, but it really doesn't bother me. And, and usually we can just ignore those cases. So it depends on how severe it is to the, the person who's experiencing the symptoms. I think it's so interesting that you mentioned feeling this disorder. It's oftentimes like in an airplane, like you said, because I feel like you're already claustrophobic, you're already confined, you already want to be able to move, but you can't. And then for someone like me, who I don't think I've ever experienced it before, I think back to being on an airplane and I think maybe that was it. You know, maybe I have experienced it before. Maybe it's more common than I thought. Yeah, it could be. And and you can identify the people with restless legs because they, if they have it fairly severe, you'll you'll go to some event and they'll be in the back kind of pacing. And it's not because they don't enjoy the show or um, they're, they're getting tired of being on the plane. It's, it's because that's, it, it's getting kind of unbearable. And, and the relief, which is fundamental to condition, is it, the sensation is relieved with movement. So the movement sends some sort of feedback mechanism back to the brain to say, let's shut off that sensation. And that's why uh, you'll see that the movement is also associated with the sensation in these situations. So talk to me a little bit about, like, obviously this is a sleep disorder. So, you know, sleep affects so many parts of our physical and mental health. How does this disorder affect, you know, who you are if you're not getting enough sleep and kind of your performance during the day as well? Yeah, so it it sort of is a, a, a neurologic condition, but it's fallen in, in the sleep disorders category for a couple of different reasons. One is uh, sleep medicine involves the body's biological clock. And, and this is something that uh, is affected like most things affected by the body's biological clock and the symptoms happen to occur at night. So this can uh, be what we call a dysomnia, meaning it, it makes it difficult to fall asleep sometimes or it can interfere with sleep. There are also associated uh, limb movements, which are not as clinically significant now that we've done more research on, but there are these uh, kind of kicking movements or, or where uh, a person who's asleep, their, their leg may, might pull away or uh, a spouse or a bed partner might say they'll kick in their sleep. And, and these occur every 20 to 40 seconds. So people with restless leg syndrome often have these, what are called periodic limb movements in sleep. And so it's something that we can see on a sleep study, not that we see restless leg syndrome, which is based on just symptoms, but we can actually see people with restless leg syndrome who have these limb movements. And the limb movements not necessarily are shown to affect sleep quality at this point. We, we don't think that they should necessarily be treated, but, but that's what, why it falls into the domain of sleep because there's a nighttime component, there's a disruption to sleep before you fall asleep or if you wake up uh, during the night with symptoms and can't fall back to sleep because you're pacing the room or have to kick your legs constantly. And then even when you're asleep, you may be uh, having these kicking movements that are occurring in your sleep. And, and, but sleep is, is really important. So if the condition becomes worse, 
uh, it could actually prevent sleep quality. It can, it can cause a reduction in one sleep and all of the bad effects that follow from that. So it, it, it's a problem in and of itself, and it could be a problem secondarily to one's sleep as well. Do we know what causes restless-like syndrome? I know you mentioned pregnancy. Um, are there any other triggers that listeners should be aware of that, you know, the actual causes of this? Well, uh, restless-like syndrome is not fully understood. It, it's mostly a problem that's occurring in the brain. There are a couple different chemicals, I guess you would call it, that are implicated in the condition. One of them, uh, the main one is iron. And uh, the element iron is deficient in the entire brain or in certain uh, specific parts of the brain. And that's been well uh, studied at this point. So people with restless leg syndrome actually have lower iron levels in their brain than people without restless leg syndrome. Even if their blood levels of iron, like the iron you would get on a blood test, looks the same, their brain levels are lower. And if you increase their iron levels, their brain levels increase more slowly. So it's this deficiency of iron. There's also um, a chemical uh, in the brain called dopamine, and that uh, is maybe better known because it's sort of the pleasure, uh, it's a neurotransmitter, but it's a chemical in the brain that it reinforces pleasure. So when you eat um, fructose or like a cupcake or something, uh, or with things like gambling or alcohol or, or substances that reinforce pleasure, dopamine is something that uh, sends the signal uh, from one brain cell to another. But in restless leg syndrome, uh, the, the shipping ports where the dopamine is received by one brain cell uh, called the dopamine receptor, they seem to be defective. And so some of the medications that involve dopamine coincidentally were found to help with symptoms of restless legs. And interestingly enough, there's a, a deep relationship between iron and dopamine in the brain because dopamine um, is helped, it's manufactured with the use of iron and it's transported with the use of iron inside of the brain. So there are a lot of uh, complex relationships between iron and dopamine, but it's primarily a condition that's caused by low iron levels. So a long-winded way of answering your question is that any condition that will lower someone's iron levels uh, can cause worsening of restless legs or actually bring on the condition, uh, whether it's, it's bleeding from some condition uh, uh, that causes blood loss or not getting enough iron in one's diet or different conditions that cause people to not be able to take in iron into their body. When I mentioned pregnancy, it's because of shifts of iron. Maybe the baby is stealing all of the iron uh, from the mom and there's less of it for the brain. That's the best theory we have on why it occurs during pregnancy due to the reduced iron levels to, to just grow a, a human life. So uh, there are a lot of situations that can make this worse. Is there a genetic or like hereditary component of restless leg syndrome? Yes. So I mentioned the kind of the Northern and Western European ancestry, not to get deeply into genetics, but there are certain gene variants that put people at greater risk of developing restless leg syndrome. And again, the most common ones are related to the function of iron uh, in the brain and, and some of them even uh, the uh, function of iron and dopamine. So it's not like you can inherit a gene and you're, you'll be guaranteed to get it but you're certainly at higher risk if you have some of these genes and some of them are available on these commercially uh, administered tests that are on the market now. So some people will come and say, I've got this gene and, and it makes sense that they have the gene, one of the genes that put them at higher risk uh, for restless leg syndrome. And it does tend to run in families because families share the same genetic risk factors, uh, but it's not uh, 
a strongly inherited gene where you're guaranteed 50-50 to get it if your parent has it, uh, but it does tend to run in families at times. And what about medications? I know you kind of briefly touched on this. Are there any medications that might cause restless leg syndrome as a symptom of that medicine? Yes, there. a lot of the uh, ways we deal with restless leg syndrome uh, is making modifications to one's lifestyle, but also looking at uh, can it be triggered by other uh, medications that uh, people may be on? And I call them kind of the, the anti-drugs. All the anti-drugs seem to make restless legs worse, which are antidepressants, uh, anti-emetics, which are uh, medications you would take for nausea, uh, uh, anti-psychotic drugs that are used for some uh, psychiatric conditions, uh, and antihistamines. So the over-the-counter drugs for sleep, for example, Somebody with restless leg syndrome uh, might take an over-the-counter sleep aid, which is actually an antihistamine. And instead of falling asleep, their restless legs gets worse and it makes it harder to sleep. So uh, a lot of the, the medications that are prescribed for other conditions can trigger restless legs. They typically don't call, cause really severe restless legs, but that can be enough for somebody to say, oh, when I take this sleeping pill that I, I got at the store, this triggers my restless legs. And that's, that's a very common situation. So we try to have, uh, uh, avoidance of those triggers. And then all of the, the natural vices, whether it's nicotine, alcohol, uh, or um, caffeine, those can also be triggers of restless leg syndrome as well. For each individual, it's a, going to be a little bit different. Wow, that's so interesting to think that, you know, an antihistamine or a sleep medicine could actually have the adverse effect and cause more restless leg syndrome, you know, symptoms, I guess. Yes, and uh, some of the common ones, uh, trazodone is one that is a prescription drug that's, it's really an antidepressant, but it's most commonly used to help people sleep during the night, and, and that can be a trigger. And uh, one called quetiapine, uh, which is an antipsychotic that is sometimes used for sleep. The, these can also be mild triggers. And then many, many people are on antidepressants. It's not that uh, this isn't advice to go off your antidepressant, but a little tweak here or there uh, with certain medications can make a difference uh, with maybe annoying symptoms of this condition without getting into medications to actually treat the condition. So speaking of depression or, you know, anxiety and then stress, it's everyone's favorite topic right now, you know, obviously with the pandemic and just feeling uh, just stressed throughout your life. I'm curious if, if maybe you only experience restless leg syndrome during times of stress or when you're going through something, you know, big life changes, is it common to kind of have restless leg syndrome come and go throughout your life, especially during periods of stress? Yes. And it, and it could be a, a bi-directional relationship because uh, people with restless leg syndrome, not everyone, it's, it's a very common condition, but tend to be a, a little bit more prone to uh, different levels of anxiety. And, but the anxiety is something, it's a survival mechanism in the brain. So when somebody becomes anxious, it's it's historically in our evolution is to like fight off a bear or run away from a bear or kill a bear to eat the bear. So so it, it was a kind of activating our fight or flight mechanisms, our sympathetic nervous system. And when that gets active, our sensations may change as well. So we may be more acutely aware of our surroundings, including the sensations within our body and, and conditions, whether it's migraine, headaches or, or, or pain conditions, Restless leg syndrome will get worse uh, 
particularly now in, ter in terms of times of stress. And then you have indirect relationships where it's, well, if you're under a lot of stress, you're not going to sleep well. If you're not sleeping well, you're going to be lying in bed for your legs to get more and more restless. So a lot of these uh, situations will feed on each other. And, and there's kind of an interrelationship between the stress and the restless legs. And the restless legs can provo provoke anxiety and stress if, if, if it's something that's very uncomfortable and preventing someone from falling asleep, certainly. It's all connected. It's why we always say, you know, get, get your stress under control. It affects so much, so many aspects of your life. Right. Yeah. We're, we're an integrated person. There's not just the brain and the legs. It, it, it's one, you, you can't separate your brain, your nerves from the rest of your body. You're, you're one whole person and it's operating together as one unit. Absolutely. Um, okay. So how does age play a factor in this? Does it typically affect one age group? Well, that's a, a tricky question. It, restless leg syndrome is more common as, as one gets older. So the, in terms of the population of people as uh, people age, there's increased levels of restless leg syndrome among people. It's not clear that it's, it's due to aging itself, but it could be due to the fact that more medical conditions are occurring uh, that might provoke restless legs uh, over time. Uh, in women, it's, it's definitely uh, something that may have two peaks. One peak could be during uh, when women have menstrual cycles and are losing a lot of blood, and then it may get better uh, after menopause. Yay, menopause, maybe one, one benefit to it. And then after menopause, uh, as women get older, it might get worse because there are just more medical conditions involved. But in general, it is associated uh, with aging, uh, but maybe not due directly to aging, but maybe the, the chances of having just more conditions, more medications, uh, more disruption, uh, to different processes that are going on in the body. But yes, it, it does even happen in children and it can be very difficult to identify. It's probably uh, not identified well in children just because children just don't have the tools yet to describe it or it's uh, kind of brushed off as, as something like being fidgety or, or not sitting still uh, when, when it's actually this maybe neurologic phenomenon going on. But it's, it's starting to be more recognized in children, but it does occur, we think at all ages potentially. So I want to get a little bit into treatment now, and I want to start off with some home remedies or strategies for restless leg syndrome that listeners can try. Do you have any recommendations? Well, yeah, I had mentioned um, some of the important things are uh, limiting some of the things that we tell you to limit for other reasons, where it's uh, don't, don't do not drink uh, caffeine excessively, uh, quit smoking or use of nicotine, uh, re reducing the amount of alcohol that one drinks, particularly close to bedtime, uh, because it does disrupt sleep quality, uh, but also it, it can also trigger restless leg syndrome. A uh, lot of habits that are, are just good healthy habits uh, during the day are also helpful. So activity tends to be helpful uh, for restless legs. However, there's some bit of a, a U-shaped curve. So basically uh, there's a paradox, whereas sometimes very, very vigorous activity tends to make restless legs worse for a lot of people. Like, so they may, uh, go for that nice bike ride and, and they feel better at night on the days they've gone on the bike ride. But if they, they bike for like 50 miles, their restless legs bothers them at night. So we know inactivity is not good for symptoms of restless legs. And sometimes vigorous, vigorous activity, uh, high intensity activity may not be great, but, but definitely there's a sweet spot for some individuals with at least moderate activity, whether it's in the moment, uh, a, a walk before 
or, or around bedtime. But th those are some habits that, that can help. And then stimulation to the legs themselves, even though the problem is not primarily in the legs, the stimulation to the legs somehow shuts off the loop of, of sensation, sort of like scratching an itch. So uh, warm baths, uh, heat, cold compresses, there have been products on the market, whether it's uh, things that vibrate, uh, vibrating pads or pressure wrap devices that are available that can, for some people, pr 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 provide some sort of stimulation uh, to the feet or legs uh, that will help uh, shut off that sensation that they're experiencing. So a lot of things uh, can be done uh, without even uh, resorting to any type of uh, doctor or medical treatment at that point. And in, in, in speaking of in terms of home remedies, like what are things that people can take over the counter? Well, uh, there's really not a lot of evidence for things to take other than one thing, which I had mentioned before, which is iron. However, I would not recommend uh, that somebody with restless legs just blindly take iron because iron is a, is a finicky uh, substance. Even though it's over the counter, you can't just take iron. You know, there's a, a quantity and amount that's appropriate based on the blood levels of iron. Because if you take too much iron, it could actually be counterproductive and it can cause uh, problems uh, in, in the bowels. So if you were thinking that your symptoms are, are, are bad enough that you would want to take iron, you probably wanna to talk to your doctor about it and get your iron levels tested. And based on those levels, your doctor can recommend a, a particular amount of iron that would be helpful. But iron will, would be the most common over-the-counter remedy that has a lot of evidence behind it in terms of tr uh, treatment use. And that's really our first line treatment as physicians. I wanna go back a little bit to some of the products you had mentioned. What about, you hear so much about weighted blankets and if they're good for you, would you recommend someone who's suffering from restless leg syndrome try a weighted blanket for their legs? Yes, so, so that one obviously, or not obviously, it, to my knowledge, it hasn't been studied in any way for restless leg syndrome. But in terms of what I tell patients is, it, it could be a double-edged sword because one, the weighted blankets are gonna prevent movement because you have something heavy on the legs. So some people, it may be unhelpful to them. But for other people that maybe that pressure and the weight from the weighted blanket uh, could uh, provide some stimulation to the legs that might replace that need to move the legs to, to relieve that restless sensation. But I would leave that up to the individual. The, the weighted blankets have many different effects, uh, whether it's physical or even uh, psychological effects, like emotional effects and just having it. it some say it's, it's like being wrapped up, like you're wrapped up in the womb when you were an infant kind of thing. And so there, there are a lot of benefits to things like the weighted blanket, but I would, I would let the, leave it up to the patient to decide on that. We, we don't have evidence to say yay or nay to that as a, a home remedy for these symptoms. Sure. Sounds a little bit kind of like trial and error, kind of what works for you, what improves your symptoms at that point. Right. And, and that would go with anything uh, related to sleep and related to restless legs, because if, if the warm bath gets your legs too uh, warm and, and you feel like it's starting to get them moving, you probably don't want to take a warm bath. But for most people, that tends to work. But whatever works for the individual uh, is what we want, want to have, because it's a very uh, kind of a subjective condition where if the symptoms are relieved, we're happy uh, with that. There's no way to quantitate the level of symptoms. And so we can't say, well, you need this much of a bath. I mean, if the bath works, take a bath. If it doesn't work, you shouldn't, if you want to take a cold shower, take a cold shower. But, but uh, it, it really is going to depend on each individual. People are, are so different in their responses to a lot of these uh, habits or, or home techniques as to how to address their symptoms 
of restless legs. So I feel like with restless leg syndrome, you always hear about the iconic sleep with a bar of soap under your, your sheet. Um, is there any truth to that? Is it, a, is it a wife's tale or does that actually help improve your symptoms? Again, that one might be more of a, a you know, kind of a, what we would call a placebo effect where the thought of having uh, the bar of soap that's doing something may be uh, evidence. I, I don't know of any evidence or any studies on the bars of soap. Uh, sometimes a restless leg syndrome gets confused with uh, leg cramps that can occur at nighttime. And that's more of a muscle situation that's not uh, in the brain. It's actually in the muscles where cramps develop. And so some of these home remedies that have occurred over years uh, are, are often to address leg cramps instead of restless legs syndrome. But it's important to distinguish those two. Leg cramps are a little bit uh, more difficult to identify and treat because it can be caused by many different things. But those are going to be kind of a stiffening or a pulling of the muscle. And uh, I've heard the bar of soap for all of these conditions. But again, that's not based on evidence uh, necessarily. Even I haven't had anybody have much success with that. Uh, uh, in terms of patients reporting the, this to me. So obviously home remedies have their limits and they can only go so far. So I'm wondering when should someone seek care for restless leg syndrome? You know, how long is too long to suffer from this? Yeah, so restless leg syndrome is, it's sometimes associated with um, different long-term conditions in terms of cardiovascular disease. There's maybe an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, for example but it's not necessarily a cause and effect relationship. It's just what we call an association where some of these things kind of come together. But there's really not great evidence to say that restless leg syndrome has to be treated. So right now, the, the general consensus is that patients treat their symptoms based on how much the symptoms are bothering them. And when I would say to go to the doctors, if, if um, symptoms are starting to get worse, they're starting to affect your ability to fall asleep, if you're extremely discomfort, uh, uncomfortable or have a lot of discomfort with these activities we used to do, like go to the theater or go onto a plane, if it's causing a lot of distress in your life, that's when you, you would want to talk to your doctor. If it, um, and maybe anything to just maybe check your iron levels to make sure your iron levels are not low, but you, you don't necessarily have to feel the obligation to treat it. It's, it's not like another condition like high blood pressure or uh, pre-diabetes where you have to make changes or there's gonna be long-term side effects 30 years from now, even if you don't have symptoms now. So it's not something uh, we do for preventative reasons. And again, I wanna emphasize that these leg movements that occur while you're asleep, if you have restless leg syndrome, there is no good evidence to say that those should be treated either. So if you happen to have a sleep study and the doctor says, oh, you had these periodic limb movements on your sleep study, that doesn't mean you should run out and go get medications for restless legs syndrome. Uh, so I wanna caution people, because that does happen a lot where something's identified and it's, if you identify it, you gotta treat it. That's not this case. Just because you have it doesn't mean uh, it needs to be treated. And, and I would typically leave that up to the patient uh, to decide on that. Of course, if they're coming to see me, then they already have symptoms enough that they're gonna bring it up with me. But if I happen to be screening for the condition and identify it among one of my sleep center patients, I will tell them that, hey, if it gets worse, we can, re we can check your iron, but otherwise don't worry about it. Sure, so I'm curious then if, if someone is really severe in this disorder and it's really affecting multiple areas of their life, and I, I understand you know, not every 
you know, uh, symptom of this needs to be treated. But if it does, who should they start off with seeing? Like, do they reach out to their primary care doctor? Do they see a neurologist right away? Kind of what's that first starting point? Yes. Yeah, so I would go, uh, if I, if, if I were recommending it to a patient, I would go see their primary care doctor first. Uh, the knowledge of restless leg syndrome is, is variable among uh, primary care physicians because it's sort of a neurological or a sleep disorder. But many primary care, it's so common that many primary care doctors will at least know uh, the initial aspects, which is usually to check uh, iron levels uh, in the blood, or, or at least look at the hemoglobin, which is the measure of one's blood count. And if the hemoglobin is normal or low normal, then you would move on to checking uh, an iron level because the hemoglobin could still be normal, but the iron levels might be a little bit low uh, for restless leg syndrome. So that's the first step. And if the primary care doctor is uncomfortable, typically they will send uh, you to a, a sleep specialist. And the sleep specialists tend to be the realm, uh, though, though some neurologists do treat restless leg syndrome, it's primarily fallen under the specialty of sleep medicine. So that's where the primary care doctor will typically refer patients to a sleep center. And, and most sleep centers should should be good at uh, managing this condition, evaluating and treating it. But I would start with the primary care doctor because if it's something as simple as uh, somebody has anemia and they have a condition where they're losing blood, just addressing that condition, treating it uh, and, and getting the iron levels up might be all that they need. So it could be another condition that the primary care doctor can identify that's triggering the restless leg syndrome. If you do find yourself meeting with a sleep specialist because of this disorder. Is an overnight sleep study usually recommended? Is that kind of the typical course of treatment for how you go about diagnosing a more severe case? Well, restless leg syndrome, there are no objective tests for restless leg syndrome. Even uh, the exam, there's nothing abnormal on an examination. So unless you're trying to, your doctor is trying to distinguish between another condition that they're not sure about, uh, they can probably do it by just how you describe the symptoms. And, and those are some of the symptoms we discussed at the beginning. But in, in a sleep disorder center, they would not necessarily order a sleep study. Now, a, a sleep study may show these periodic limb movements, uh, maybe 70, 80% of the time, or maybe up to 90% of the time if you had multiple uh, sleep studies with restless leg syndrome. But uh, the, the sleep study itself is meant to diagnose other sleep disorders, particularly obstructive sleep apnea. So if when the sleep center is screening a patient for restless leg syndrome, if they happen to think that there might be another cause of sleep problems or a condition like obstructive sleep apnea, uh, which is a, a, a problem in the throat where the throat is collapsing during the night, which causes a snoring sound and, and the brain to wake up frequently uh, during the night, uh, that's something that they will order a sleep study for, but it's not required uh, for the diagnosis of restless legs syndrome. So right now, um, and, and we may touch on this uh, later on, but uh, telemedicine is a great uh, tr uh, way of, of seeing your doctor during the pandemic because it doesn't require any examination or tests unless you, of course, need a blood test. But just talking to a doctor, they, they may be able to help identify this condition for you and, and recommend some sort of treatment uh, plan, uh, even without having to lay a finger on you. Yeah, absolutely. Always a good point to mention virtual appointments and kind of just how accessible the pandemic has made seeing a healthcare provider. 
So I know we talked a little bit about treatments. We mentioned, you know, checking your iron and maybe using an iron supplement with the help of a doctor or a healthcare provider. We talked about some of the lifestyle changes and things that you could do. Are there any other treatments for this that a physician would recommend for a patient? Yeah. So if it gets to the point where uh, iron levels uh, have been tested and, and they seem to be at goal, uh, as, sometimes uh, patients, even with normal iron levels, they can get what are called um, IV iron infusions, where iron is given uh, directly uh, into the bloodstream and the iron levels go up very high, which is higher than they can be if you just uh, take iron through your diet or, or through supplementation. Uh, so that's going to become a, a new treatment. That one's not typically covered by insurance as, as frequently because it's a relatively newer treatment, but that's sometimes available at certain centers to get an iron infusion. And that's based on a lot of clinical evidence. So that would be one step you could take before you even consider medications. Uh, but that one, uh, there's going to be barriers for you as an individual to getting an iron infusion. Uh, the, the first line medications, though, if the doctor decides, well, this is a time to start medications, are um, they would fall into the class of nerve pain or seizure medications, uh, kind of drugs that have been repurposed, uh, that be, had been used for seizures or, or nerve pain, and now are, are used for restless leg syndrome. One that is FDA approved uh, is called gabapentin and a carbil. Uh, there's also one called regular gabapentin, and then uh, one called pregabalin. Those are the three main uh, medications. And, and these are the, the clinical consensus is that these are now the first line uh, medications uh, for restless leg syndrome. And the majority of patients who have never been treated for restless leg syndrome, uh, if you have iron and then you have these seizure medications, those are mostly as far as you would ever need to go to have your symptoms under control. It's pretty rare to need any anything more. But there are two other classes of drugs uh, for restless leg syndrome. Uh, one are actually opiate medications and uh, or narcotics. Uh, so uh, medications like uh, buprenorphine or methadone. And these are, are classic, what we call pain medications. Sometimes these are considered as second line or third line uh, for restless leg syndrome, but they're typically reserved for extremely severe cases of restless leg syndrome. And most people uh, would not need to ever resort to an opiate medication for restless legs, but it is actually the oldest treatment medication treatment for restless legs that was, it was first described in the 17th century uh, for a noble woman in 17th century England when restless legs is thought to be first described in the, in the medical field and, and they gave the patient the opium plant. So that would be probably my second line as a physician. And then what I would describe as third line but is actually very commonly used are medications called dopamine agonists. And a, a couple of the ones that are FDA approved, the there are two pill forms that are FDA approved, which is uh, ropinirol and pramipexol, uh, using the generic names, and then a, a patch called rotigotine. Now, these drugs were all FDA approved for restless leg syndrome, but now with 20 years of use, it has been shown that they actually uh, worsen the condition. So I mentioned dopamine. Uh, there's a problem with the dopamine shipping port inside of uh, a brain of someone with restless leg syndrome. But with the use of these medications, it causes changes in the brain. And we think there's an alteration in these shipping ports where the shipping ports start to close down. And it, and it causes this condition called augmentation, which anybody with restless leg syndrome should know about, is that if they've been on these drugs for maybe several months to many years, the condition will gradually worsen. And it's now thought that this is inevitable. 
So if you're on the medication long enough, or if you're taking a high enough dose of the medication, the condition will gradually get worse with time. So now the recommendations are not to use these medications, which used to be first line, are no longer considered first line. And, and a lot of uh, specialists in this area, including myself, uh, this is not a consensus, but I, I will not start someone on a medication that will inevitably worsen the condition, potentially because it could be a lifelong condition. And you don't wanna use a short-term treatment that's gonna make things worse in the long run. So philosophically, I'm opposed to these medications, even though they're FDA approved, but the, the FDA approval process doesn't last for 10 years. It's a short term. And now with 20 years of experience, I would very, very caution people to uh, think twice before starting uh, one of these medications because of that long-term risk. Absolutely. And I, I just want to clarify for listeners. So medications at this point, especially provided from your healthcare provider, are second or third line defenses to restless leg syndrome, correct? Yes. So the first thing is, do you even need the medication? And because all of the, the three or four classes that I've described, they all come with potential for a lot of side effects. And you don't want to have any type of treatment where the, the treatment side effects are worse than the condition themselves. Because again, this is not high blood pressure where it's going to cause other things to get worse in 20 years or, or in 10 years. This is a condition that you're just treating symptoms of. It doesn't need to be prevented necessarily. So to take a lot of these medications, uh, like the nerve pain medications and the opiate medications and the dopamine medications, you don't want to have long-term side effects from these drugs uh, if, if your symptoms aren't really that bad. If they are that bad, that we have the drugs there. I'm not saying not to take the drugs, but again, taking the medications, I would say, are third or fourth line uh, compared to all of these different lifestyle modifications, uh, even uh, things uh, to improve uh, levels of inflammation in the body, weight loss, things that will generally make your body healthy tend to make restless leg syndrome improve as well. Improving diet, increasing amount of iron in your diet. Those things should be the first approach. It sh we shouldn't jump, necessarily jump to a medication just because the condition is there. And then we can avoid some of the side effects of these medications. Absolutely. So the last thing I wanna ask you about today is just your general advice for why listeners should still seek care for restless leg syndrome, even when we're going through a pandemic. Yes, so again, if these symptoms of restless leg syndrome are uh, distressing or they're causing uh, particularly sleep problems where um, you're lying down and you're, you're un unable to sleep because you gotta get up and move or you gotta keep kicking your legs, that's going to have a cascade of effects on your body because poor sleep quality, sleep deprivation, uh, that can lead to all sorts of different problems throughout um, the entire body. And uh, even the, just the emotional uh, stress of, uh, we have enough to deal with, uh, with the pandemic that we don't need to add emotional stress of having to just try to overcome this sensation that's really bothering you and preventing you from doing what you want to do or sit still uh, for a period of time. Uh, though these things can be addressed in a medical way. Again, uh, this is not going to require major surgery or, or any type of hands-on intervention. Uh, we have virtual health available. Many insurance companies are still uh, providing it and will probably provide it forever at this point. And so it's a good time to seek care. It can be done in a safe fashion. Uh, this is sort of my office that I see patients in more than 50% of the week. And most of the patients with restless legs see me through this camera that you're watching me through now. So uh, it is something that there's no reason to delay care. This, this can be addressed um, without having to be exposed to a hospital or clinic setting. This can be addressed from your home. And there are many 
providers out there, whether it's primary care or, or a sleep specialist that a person can see and get the treatment that, that they need. And there may be other sleep conditions that often overlap that need to be addressed, particularly insomnia and sleep apnea, as I mentioned before, which both worsen restless legs uh, syndrome, and those can be addressed uh, separately at a sleep center as well. Yes, that's wonderful advice to end on. Dr. Bukowski, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and sharing your insight. Oh, it was my pleasure to participate. For the latest news about restless leg syndrome, visit clevelandclinic.org sleep. If you want to listen to more Health Essentials podcasts featuring experts at Cleveland Clinic, like Dr. Bukowski, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from or visit clevelandclinic.org slash HE podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Cleveland Clinic, all one word, to stay up to date on the latest health news and information. Thanks again for listening. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.